This isn't going to work out today. I shouldn't be up here. Diane and I are so thankful for Dub and Fran Manley, uh, Kelly's parents, because they raised the daughter that she did, and more importantly, because she took our son off of our hands. <laughs> but they're, they're having a good time down there, and we're so grateful for them and, uh, and uh, looking forward to uh, hearing what good time they had. Uh, I also want to make a brief comment about recess. This was a phenomenal program they had this year. Meredith and her team uh, did an outstanding job uh, during the week. Now, <laughs> you know, old people shouldn't volunteer for that, right? So I didn't volunteer, but I was over during the week and observing what was taking place and then uh, talking with some of the kids, and I just can't get over how... Um, effective those folks were in working with those kids and the love that they displayed. It wasn't just a job for those who were on staff. Uh, it was uh, really a demonstration of love for these children. And that was an extension of what you as a congregation have done to promote and extend the vision of this church to serve the folks on the south side of South Bend here. So again, I just want to personally thank all of you for making what has taken place uh, happen. Now today we're going to continue uh, the series that Sam began last week concerning hearing the voice of God. And uh, last week Sam talked about hearing the voice of God when we have those collision moments uh, in our lives where God uses those epiphany moments to uh, help us to recognize our true condition before God. And when we get that spiritual light bulb going on and have that aha moment, uh, we're, in essence, hearing the voice of God. And this week, we're going to look at hearing the voice of God in the Bible. In Hebrews, the first chapter, the first two verses of that chapter, the Scripture says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has used a variety of means to communicate with humankind. He sent angelic messengers like he did with Abraham and Lot to convey his message to them. He's given messages to the prophets to take to his people. And we have a whole section in the Old Testament of those prophetic words that were uh, communicated through those men. He has communicated through that still, small voice to someone like Elijah, who was looking at, uh, for him in the whirlwind and, and all of the phenomena that was going around him, but it was God found in the least expected places in that still, small voice. And he even had a message for Balaam when he communicated through the mouth of a donkey. I guess that was the Old Testament version of Mr. Ed, for those of you who were around in the 50s and 60s. And he has written on tablets of stone with his own finger to convey his laws to the people of Israel. God even speaks and reveals himself through his creation. As Paul says in Romans, the first chapter, in verses 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they, that is, those who refuse to acknowledge God, are without excuse. It's God. And how he chooses to communicate 
is God's business. And who is man to think that he can limit or restrict the ways that God can or will communicate? And I confess that for many years I was such a man. I thought of God as having completed his ways of communicating uh, at the end of the first century A.D., and that he, after he had given the scriptures and it completed, then he withdrew into heaven, and then he was going to let his plan play out until the end of time. And to me, that was orthodoxy. But what a foolish and conceited notion that really was. But at the same time, God's divine genius has made his voice known to us in a divinely preserved document that is without equal or compare, and that is the Bible. And I fear we live in a day and age when we have become so familiar with having this that we fail to appreciate exactly the work of God in preserving that for us and how it came to be to begin with, and then the preservation of it. It's an astounding story. And the Bible because of its divine authorship, is a keystone in man's history and progress. In 1440, a German inventor by the name of Johann Gutenberg invented a printing press process that revolutionized communications among mankind. And until the late 20th century, with some refinements along the way, it remained the principal means of printing. And his method of using movable type and a special press and oil-based inks allowed for the first time the mass production of printed books. Now think about that for a moment. The way you mass produce books prior to him is it was copied by hand over and over and over again, the arduous process, the slow and painstaking process. And Gutenberg comes along with his uh, invention and revolutionizes. I remember practicing typesetting when I was in the eighth grade in my shop class. I, I guess they don't compel you to go to shop class anymore. Uh, but back then we went to shop class and we learned these various trades or at least got a taste of them. And I remember typesetting being one of them. I remember typesetting. Now the first book printed in that mass producing process was the Bible. And Gutenberg printed 180 copies. And since then, the Bible in whole or in part has been translated into 2,400 languages and is the most translated book in all of history. It's available to virtually all parts of the world with a spoken language. And with the advent of the electronic age, there's a multitude of new platforms for the dissemination of the Bible. Back in June of 2010, I went out and I bought this iPad. Now, I know some of you are looking and say, okay, they've had two revisions of that thing right now, and you need to go out and update that. And I keep saying to my wife, yes, I need to do that, but she keeps saying, but yours keeps working like a champ. And so I haven't got that done. But one of the first applications I downloaded on my iPad was the NIV Bible. Now, you can get copies of the Bible for free as an application to download, but I paid $10 for this. And um, as a side note, if you were able to obtain one of the original 180 copies of the Gutenberg Bible, you'd be paying between 25 and $35 million. But I was able to get the NIV, and individual pages from those Bibles will go for $25,000 a page. But Apple isn't charging me for that. I got this for $10, uh, downloaded that app, 
And so for the last three years, instead of beginning my Bible reading program in January, as a lot of you do, I begin in late June. Uh, and I'm beginning my fourth round of reading through the Bible on my iPad. And recently, last month, I was in the book of Exodus. And uh, I'm currently in the book of Numbers, an exciting book in the New Old Testament. But let me, let me share one, just as a side note, and I don't want to get too off base here, but to, to show you how I believe sometimes God works in this. Um, as I was reading my passage this morning, uh, it's in that passage where, in the book of Numbers, where it talks about all of the tribes bringing in their offerings as they're uh, inaugurating the uh, tabernacle. And uh, as I'm reading through that passage, I get to the end of the seventh chapter, and it says this, And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. Now, as I was bored reading through all of the details of the offerings that were being given, it just struck me that somehow at the last verse of this passage, it talks about the voice of God speaking uh, to Moses. But that is an aside. As I'm reading through in, January, in uh, uh, July, I'm in Exodus, and I come to Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11, and I was just profoundly struck by this, where it says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. As I read that, I was struck by the incredible relationship that Moses had with our Creator. And everyone else had to steer clear of the mountain. You didn't even come to the base of the mountain where Moses and God met together. Uh, they had to stay care of it, but God allowed Moses to come up and to be in his presence. And it was such an awe-inspiring experience that there was a radiance that emanated from the visage, that means the face of Moses, as he came down because he'd been in the presence of God, he had to cover his face. And to think that God regarded him so highly as to have a conversation face-to-face as with a friend, I covet such a relationship with God. I would love to think that God could speak to me like he spoke with Moses. But I don't have that kind of relationship. And you don't either. And hardly anybody else throughout mankind's history has as well. But his voice is still available to you and to me. The Apostle Paul's closest protege and disciple was a generation younger than him. He was a young man by the name of Timothy. And as Paul neared the end of his life, he gave this admonition to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and, from, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So let's spend a few minutes this morning talking about these scriptures, That's, that is the Bible, through which even I can hear the voice of God. And this is by no means an exhaustive discussion, but I want to highlight some points for you to consider if you're willing to regard the Bible as more than just an unused coffee table book. The Bible is unique in all of literature. There is truly no other work comparable to it. The very word Bible comes from the Greek biblion, which means little books. And yes, I did take a year of Greek in college, but don't ask me too many questions beyond that. 
It is actually a compilation of 66 books written over a span of approximately 1,500 years. It was written primarily in two languages, Hebrew with the smattering of Aramaic in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and the New Testament, it was written in the Greek. And it wasn't just classical Greek, it was koine, or common Greek, the Greek that was spoken in the marketplace. It had dozens of writers, almost 40, both known and unknown. And the manuscript evidence for this ancient book is more abundant, incredibly more abundant than any other piece of ancient literature that is accepted as wholly authentic. Now, again, I talked about a little bit about how bookmaking took place prior to Gutenberg's printing press. <coughs> Excuse me. In the ancient world, you had uh, scribes. This is one of the reasons why in the New Testament we read about the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes are those people who were charged with writing and copying these different manuscripts. And the reasons they were such experts in the law of Moses was that they had written it over and over and over and over again. It was their life. So that's how they knew everything, the, every jot and tittle of the book. Uh, and sometimes they do mass production by having what they call a scriptorium where they had one person at the front who would read the text and then all the copyists would be out before him writing down as he dictated. What a slow and arduous process. That's how all books were transmitted back then. Now, one of the ancient classics of the ancient world is a work called The Gallic Wars, written by Julius Caesar. We've all heard of Julius Caesar. There are ten remaining manuscripts of this book. And again, these are books that are accepted as entirely authentic. There are ten remaining manuscripts of this work, the earliest dating from a thousand years after Julius Caesar lived. That's the earliest copy of the manuscript of The Gallic Wars that we have. There's another ancient work written by a man called Pliny the Elder, and this was to contrast him with Pliny the Younger, who was not Pliny Jr., his son, but it was his nephew. Uh, but he wrote an encyclopedia entitled Natural History. There are seven surviving manuscripts, and the earliest was 750 years after his death. That's all that we've got. The works of Plato have seven surviving manuscripts, and the earliest being 1,300 years after he lived. But we certainly accept the works of Plato as having been written by Plato and as being authentic. And then there is Tacitus, who wrote a history entitled The Annals. And there are a lot more surviving manuscripts for Tacitus. There are 20, and the earliest being 1,000 years after his death. And I could cite several more ancient works that are accepted without question as being authentic and uh, uh, with similar manuscript evidence. And did you know that there are no surviving manuscripts of the works of William Shakespeare? And he only lived scant 400 years ago. Now, the most renowned book of ancient Greece and the second best preserved book in all of history is Homer's Iliad. Written by Homer? No, not that Homer. There are 643 manuscript copies that have been discovered to date. However, in comparing those manuscripts, we find that there are 764 lines that have some discrepancies in them, so it's some question as to whether they really belong in the original autographs or not. But let's look at the Bible manuscript evidence. Compared to other ancient writings, the Bible stands alone as absolutely the best preserved literary work of antiquity. 
there are literally thousands of existing Old Testament manuscripts and fragments that were copied throughout the Middle East, the Mediterranean, and the European regions that agree phenomenally with each other. In addition, these texts substantially agree with a translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek that was done 300 years before Christ lived in the 3rd century B.C. Now, to show you that we don't have everything yet, probably, that is out there to provide this manuscript evidence, back in November of 1946, that's just two and a half years before I came on the scene, there were some Bedouin shepherds watching over their flocks in the area of the Dead Sea. And uh, as I'm sure happens when, when you're watching flocks of sheep out in a desert somewhere and you don't have a lot to do, you get bored. And so one of the shepherd boys picked up a stone and threw it into a cave. And when he did, he heard something like a jar break. And so he and his friends went to the mouth of the cave and went in to see what that was. And what they found was jars with scrolls from the prophet Isaiah that had been preserved for who knows how long, probably copied 2,200 to 2,300 years before. And when these scrolls were compared with other manuscripts of Isaiah, there was an astounding evidence of careful preservation and transmission of the original text. Now, let me pause here to observe that it's probably a good thing we didn't wait another 65 years for that shepherd to relieve his boredom to make this discovery. Because if he were bored in 2013, instead of throwing rocks into a cave, he would be playing Candy Crush on his iPhone. And when we look at the manuscript record of the New Testament, the evidence is equally dramatic in faith building. There have been over 25,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament discovered and archived so far. At least 5,600 are manuscripts or fragments in the original Greek. And some manuscript texts date to as early as the 2nd and 3rd century A.D. With the time between the original text and our earliest existing fragments being a remarkably short 40 to 60 years. So why am I going through all that? Why am I citing this as being important? It's this. Because the Bible as an ancient document so far overshadows all other ancient documents in man's history. When I look at that kind of evidence, it erases any kind of doubt from my mind that what we have preserved for us is exactly what was transmitted in the originals. And I suggest to you that the reason why the documentary evidence is so overwhelming is because it has been carefully and religiously preserved from generation to generation. It was cared for and preserved because the source is Almighty God. Now, we have only scratched the surface regarding the authenticity and accuracy of the Bible, and I'm not intending that this lesson be a lesson on biblical research and criticism. And if you want to get into a discussion regarding textual variations and what that means, well, we'll get together at another time and hash that out. But what I'm contending with this is that God's word and his voice to his people have been preserved. And we have God's voice in our hands or our iPads or our iPhones or whatever media we have that on. And if this is God's voice, then it's not just some other fascinating piece of ancient literature. It is God-breathed and life-giving and life-directing. And it reveals the mind and plan and love of our God for us. And as believers, we have gathered here today to worship and meditate on our Creator. And I want you to know that we have His voice revealing Him to us 
right now. His children in Africa and Asia and Europe and Indiana can all hear his voice right now. C.S. Lewis once wrote concerning reading the Bible, he said, it's not a question of learning a subject, but of steeping ourselves in a personality. And I think that's so true. It's not enough to study the words of the Bible. One must hear the voice of God through the Bible. In John 5, Jesus confronts some scholars of the Scriptures who, while studying the words, didn't begin to comprehend the voice coming from those words. In John 5, beginning in verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Jesus says, His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He sent. You search the Scripture because you think you have eternal life, and it is they who bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have, his life, may have life. Scholarship does not equate to hearing the voice of God in what is being studied. You can have, and we do have, biblical scholars who are atheists. Those Old Testament scriptures were God's voice to his people about the Messiah that was to come. All those men who, to whom Jesus was addressing those words had read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. But they didn't hear Isaiah 53. They had failed to steep themselves in the personality. That is the voice that was in those scriptures. They were very religious, but their lives were not being shaped by the voice of God. But you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's all well and good. But if God is truly able to do all things, and if he did speak to others on occasion, even through the mouth of a donkey, why can't he just speak his voice directly to me in my personal and individual circumstances? If I'm about to make some horrible life-altering decision, why can't God just speak into my ear, Hey, moron, you don't want to do that or you'll be sorry. After all, he is God. Can't he tailor make his message for me and save me all that reading, especially in the book of Numbers? Yes, I suppose he could do that, but the better question to me is, who is the creator and who is the creation? Are we so central to God's creation and his plan that he will accommodate our personal convenience? Even Moses, who spoke with God face to face as a friend, was told as he approached God to remove his sandals from off his feet because the ground he was walking on was holy. And besides that, God in his infinite wisdom and love has provided scriptures that are timeless in their guidance through the ages to how we should live and conduct ourselves and make life choices. Let me illustrate it this way. As most of you know, I worked for many years at the Internal Revenue Service, a total of almost 33 years. Now, what is the IRS? Don't answer that. I know many of you are thinking Satan's spawn, but in reality, it is a government agency that is part of the Department of the Treasury that is tasked with administering the Internal Revenue Code. Now, when I think back to my beginning with this agency in 1971, as a rookie revenue officer in the field trying to collect delinquent taxes and secure unfiled returns, wouldn't it have been nice as I started working each new case assignment to ring up the Secretary of the Treasury as I tried to evaluate what needed to be done in the case and get his input about each nuance that I uncovered and let him lead me case decision after case decision. I'm sure he would have appreciated that if I could have gotten his number. Of course, there were 5,000 of us scattered throughout the country, so he'd need a lot of lines coming in. 
And that's not to mention those in other divisions who were doing auditing or those who were doing criminal investigations or those who were providing service to those who had tax questions or those who were scattered at various sites around the countries receiving tax returns and processing them. And all told, about 100,000 employees. Do you know your tax dollars are paying for them? Even if that were physically possible, why would it be done that way? Instead, each segment or function of the organization had what is called an internal revenue manual. I bet when you got up this morning, you didn't know you were going to learn this stuff when you came here this morning. And each of those functions had general and specific guidelines that met almost all of the variations that we faced as we attempted to administer the tax code. On rare occasions, there were circumstances that arose that did not fit standard casework practices and we were not authorized under the laws just to be innovative so we, and, and strike out on our own. So then we sought the voice of the secretary or the commissioner or their delegate to get a voice from outside the norm. But most, almost all was covered in that manual. And I, the reason I raise this is because I believe it's sort of analogous to how God has chosen to communicate with his people. Most of what we face in this life, God has already addressed through the voice of his scriptures. There might be occasions where he chooses to communicate by some other means, as we have seen in the scriptures, that he has done. But his voice is readily available and lovingly direct in how we should conduct our lives and serve him. Let's go back to Paul's statement to Timothy that we read earlier in 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. Let's pause there for a second. How can 40 different individuals participate in the writing of the scriptures and yet it is all breathed out by God? I have no idea how that process worked. And any answer I came up with will be pure speculation. But isn't it an indicator that even though that many different individuals contributed to the writing of the scriptures and each of their writings reveal their individual styles and personalities, that there is an unbelievable unity and cohesion in the message taken as a whole? Why? Because God is breathing his spirit, guiding the message and the process. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching. Pause again. How do I know Jesus fits into the plan of God and his position in the kingdom is what it is? Through what line did he come? Were there anything foretold regarding him that identified him as the one who was to come? What was the history of of Israel as God took a people who were not a nation and formed a nation out of them and became, they became the vehicle by which the Messiah was to come. How is it that I know about the Hittite nation that Scripture talks about over and over again and yet mankind found no evidence of a Hittite nation until 1906? Some archaeologists suddenly uncovered that, that. That was one of the arguments that was being made against the authenticity of the Scriptures. They talk about the Hittites a lot in the Old Testament, but nobody's ever seen anything about a Hittite nation. In 1906, there was a, 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 an avalanche of information and discovery made about a Hittite nation. How, did we, how do we find out all that stuff? Because the Scriptures teach. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. Pause again. How can I know that I need justifiable criticism for my wrong behavior? The scriptures will reprove me. We will have those collision moments like Sam was speaking about last week in which when we 
examine our lives in light of the Scriptures, this God-breathed document, that we've come to a conviction that we need to change something. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Pause again. Have you ever needed correction? Now, you guys who are married already know the answer to that. It's not even arguable. But the truth is, there are countless times I needed to make changes in my life because I was headed in the wrong direction. Who's going to guide me in deviating to the right course? It is the voice of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Are there moral decisions that we need to make? Of course there are. Sometimes daily. For some, hourly. We need a voice to train us to be righteous so that becomes a part of our nature and fabric. Even though the morals of our culture have radically changed over the years, the voice of God does not change, and the voice of God does not give us the latitude to accommodate the changes of our culture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete equipped for every good work. My friends, we have the voice of God in the Scriptures educate us about God, but even more to reveal God to us and allow us to breathe in what he has breathed out through the scriptures. It's not good enough to do a cursory reading even daily of scripture, but we need to steep ourselves in this revealed voice of God so that he can make us in a new creation suitable for his kingdom. He's there to speak to us if we'll just listen. The apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, we, when, he, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter leads me to my final point this morning. Can God choose any way to communicate that he desires? Of course he can. But he has given us the standard of the scriptures to judge whether or not he who is speaking is God. If someone says they have a message from the Lord, they might. But if they are saying something that contradicts or conflicts with what God has communicated through these scriptures, that message can and must be rejected. How do we know this? Jesus' closest friend when he was on earth was the apostle John. And John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out in the world. The revealed voice of God will not be contradicted by those who claim to have a word from the Lord. So if someone tells you that the Lord gave them a message for you, remember that you have access to the voice of God in the Scriptures. And if there's a conflict between their voice and the voice of the Scriptures, and you'll never know for sure unless you steep yourself in those scriptures, then quickly head in a direction away from them. Let's not undervalue 
and underappreciate what God has given to us in his word. Would you bow with me, please? Holy God, our Father in heaven, Father, we are so thankful that you have revealed to us your voice in this word. Father, we are thankful for those men and women who through the years have labored diligently to preserve it and to document it and to provide for us evidences that increase our faith that what we hold, Father, in our hands truly is your word. And Father, we're thankful for the guidance that that word gives us for the way in which it not only reproves and rebukes us, but, Father, the way in which it instructs us and trains us. Father, I ask you to bless that word in the hearts of each hearer this morning. May we accept your word, Father, and live by it and through it and in it. We ask this through your Holy Son, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and sing this song with us this morning? before creation eternity in your hand you spoke the earth into motion my soul now to stand and you stood before my failure Carry the cross from my shame. My sin weighed upon your shoulders, my soul now to stand. So, what can I say? And what can I do? Offer this heart, oh God, completely to you. So I'll stand upon salvation, the Spirit alive in me, my life to declare your promise. Now to stand. So, what can I say? And what can I do? To offer this heart, oh God, completely. What can I do? Offer this heart, oh God, completely to you.
So I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all. I'll stand my soul, Lord, to you surrendered all I am is yours. I'll stand with God and to worship Him through the gathering of our tithes and offerings. So as we uh, get ready to do that, let's just pray and ask God to receive um, what we hope others will be blessed by. God in, in heaven, thank you that you empower us and give us um, ways to um, provide resources for our families, but also thank you for this opportunity to provide resources which will bless others. God, we pray that you would accept this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Before we go, um, while they're collecting the offering, I just want to remind you that like hearing God's voice is kind of a tricky thing. Um, it's not always simple. And so there are people who would love to pray with you if, if that's something that you want to work through with them um, or anything else that's on your heart.